Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 11 of the Well Office podcast. Here at McGill, we are celebrating Black History Month under the theme Healing Forward. I'm Dr. Namta Gupta, and I'm here with Camila Velez. Hi, everyone. So what we're really doing with this podcast is we're going to honor and celebrate the work and accomplishments and the contributions of the Black community. So for today's podcast, we're going to be chatting with Dr. Chika Stacy Orwiwa, who graduated from the class of 2020 at Toronto's Faculty of Medicine. She was her class valedictorian, and she's presently completing her residency in psychiatry also at the University of Toronto. She's been the recipient of numerous prestigious awards, including one of Best Health's magazine's 2020 Women of the Year. And I think it's important to note also that during her medical studies, she completed her Master of Science in Health Systems, Leadership and Innovation. So welcome, Dr. Oriwa. How are you doing? Thank you. I'm doing well. How are you? We're doing well. We're really excited to have you here. And it falls so nicely with uh, the beginning of Black History Month. What does that mean for you, Black History Month? I, I would definitely say that Black History Month for me has always been a time of celebration within the Black community, but also within the community at large to recognize the resilience and strength and intellect and the contributions of the Black community to society. Um, But certainly for me, it's something that I strive to do year round because I think that the Black community deserves to be celebrated and recognized at at all times as opposed to just in February. And so I definitely try to use my platform throughout the year to highlight the incredible contributions of the Black community all the time. (laughs) That's great. Yeah, such such an important uh, distinction. Um, I wanted to maybe move to the present and we're certainly going to talk about your past uh, um, but I was wondering what you're up to these days Uh, what's on your mind what's happening by way of passion for you uh, right now 2021 February so these days I'm doing my my residency right now in psychiatry at U of T I just finished a block in behavioral neurology and I'm starting back at the emergency department at CAMH in the next month and so I'm very excited to get back to my core rotations. And um, yeah, I'm I'm really loving residency so far. It's obviously had its challenges, but it's been an incredible journey. And I've kept up with my public speaking throughout residency, which has been a, a difficult balancing act, but has certainly been something for me that has been very restorative throughout this time. Um, I just finished filming a TED Talk this past Sunday. And so (laughs) that was very um, exciting. I, it was one of the things that I've always wanted to cross off my bucket list was to give a TED talk. And so to have been able to have given it and it really wasn't that much turnaround time from when I found out I was going to be a TEDx speaker to actually filming it was about 30 days. And so needing to write a brand new speech and then memorize it and rehearse it and perform it. And it was it was quite a wild experience, but certainly one of the most amazing things I think I've ever had the honor of doing. So That's so awesome. What was your TED Talk about? So my TED Talk was about daring to occupy space. And that speaks to um, not only racialized individuals, but anyone who's marginalized from any kind of particular demographic. And so anyone who's traditionally underrepresented in in a space, daring to enter that space and existing in that space as their authentic selves. And so my journey has really been one in which as a black woman in medicine, 
a space that you don't traditionally see Black women or historically have not traditionally seen Black women, um, daring to occupy that space as my authentic Black female self um, and doing so unapologetically, but then also putting the onus and putting pressure on individuals who had the privilege of occupying this space and being the majority and daring them to make room for others from the margins to step in, to allow them to occupy that space. And so that for me has been um, something that I'm really quite passionate about speaking on. And so being able to give the TED Talk on this past weekend on that topic was just quite an incredible opportunity. Wow, you you know, we're at what, 55 seconds into our podcast and you're already giving me chills. I think that's amazing. Um, how did that happen that you were invited to do the TED Talk? Was it something that you were approached by somebody on? Yeah, so I was approached by the TEDx McMaster team and they had offered me the opportunity. Normally what happens is that people apply to give TEDx talks. That's usually what happens. You like submit your pitch for your talk, I believe. Um, and I've always wanted to do it. I just never really, unfortunately, had the time to really apply to one. And I was approached by the organizers who had seen some of my work before. And they asked me if I would be interested in, you know, pitching an idea for a talk and potentially giving a talk. And so things happened just really quickly because I think they approached me mid-December, really, I'd say around that time. And then by the end of December, everything was kind of solidified. And so the first week of January was when I started to work on it and I needed to have it completely written. And this is like a 15 minute speech. So completely written, memorized, rehearsed, and ready to go for filming and performance by January 31st. And so that was, it was a completely wild ride. And I did not think I was going to be able to pull it off <laughs> because between residencies and then I did three keynotes last month as well. And so I just did not think that I was going to be able to pull it off. But I'm very fortunate that it all kind of came together in the end. Congratulations. And how are you able to navigate all of that to balance all of that plus your personal life and self? I would say I have an incredibly supportive partner who really is just such an amazing rock for me. Um, he's given me a lot of emotional support in the past month, which has been a very trying and exhausting time. Um, but certainly I find that keeping a meticulous schedule, like I'm, I'm quite regimented when it comes to my schedules, almost to a fault. And I like to plan out every hour of my day. I have, you know, my calendars organized three months in advance. And so I always kind of know what needs to be done every day for like the next few weeks. And that helps keep me calm, cool and collected during a very chaotic time. Uh, but certainly being able to set boundaries as well is really, really important for me. Recognizing when it is okay for me to say no to certain opportunities and also being able to put up my boundaries with friends and family. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I think that once I respect my own boundaries that other individuals also learn how to respect it. And mm -hmm. so letting my friends know, you know, this is a very busy month for me or letting individuals who reach out to me asking me to, you know, participate in certain things, letting them know this is a very busy month for me. I won't have the bandwidth until this certain time. And that I think has been keeping me well in the last month for sure. 
Um, but yeah, that's how I tend to juggle all of these things and also exercising and doing yoga and all of that. <laughs> you know, so we are the well office and most of our listeners are health professional learners. And so I think it might be a good idea to give them some context about your ride and your journey because, um, you know, a quick internet search on your name will just show how many boundaries you probably have to put up these days because there's a lot that you've been up to and there's a lot that you've addressed. And so I'm wondering if we can maybe take you back to uh, being a valedictorian last year, which I suspect started quite a bit of your journey, although I, I, if I understand correctly, that was not the first time that you were a valedictorian in your life. <laughs> so do you want to speak to to being a valedictorian? Sure. So definitely. So you, you are correct. The first time I was valedictorian was actually in high school <laughs> back in 2011. <laughs> and, uh, but since then, my experience with being a valedictorian in medical school was honestly such an incredible life-changing experience I would say especially being a valedictorian in a pandemic and having to deliver a virtual keynote that was an interesting experience but also afforded me the opportunity to connect with thousands of people yeah. much more than I probably would have had we had an in-person convocation but certainly I would say that my, my experience being a valedictorian speaks to the journey that I had been on um, even leading up to medical school and finding the beauty in the fact that my journey was very othering and isolating at times just due to the fact that I was the only Black student in my class and being a Black woman in medicine and feeling very, very isolated in certain regards. And then having the opportunity of representing my class, it's almost this oxymoron of like no one else. In my <laughs> no class kidding. Yeah. Like, um, and yet out of 260 people I was called to represent my class at the end of our medical school journey um, and, and that for me was very reaffirming and lends to the message that I tried to communi communicate through my TED talk which is daring to occupy space, daring to show up as your authentic self and allowing others to see you in your wholeness and recognize and respect that and I think that my journey of advocating tirelessly throughout medical school and continuing that advocacy speaks to the fact that I had a lot of fear of what people might think about me advocating for an initiative to increase the number of Black medical students. And then in the end, having my class recognize that as something that is valuable and that is worthy of the recognition of being valedictorian, I think just speaks to that idea that once you stand in your truth, whatever your truth is, it, it, it empowers you and it emboldens you to be able to exist as your authentic self. And it also commands that, that certain aspect of, of respect so that other people can see that, they can recognize that. And so um, that for me, it really encompasses the importance of what being the valedictorian meant. That's beautiful. And I think what you were just saying now makes me think a little bit about some of our learners. And some of our learners, they experience isolation within the medical institution, as well as microaggressions at times, uh, macroaggressions, and there's the sense of fear, the sense of fear of speaking out or reporting 
or even at times finding communities because there's real risks as you were talking about in your valedictorian speech such as mm -hmm. you know being identified as the problem student or learner residency mm -hmm. applications career opportunities there's all these risks that you were talking about and that our learners have expressed as well so another thing you were mentioning that i i thought was really important was uh the price of staying silent mm -hmm. so how did you harness the courage or why do you think it's so important about being able to use your voice despite the risk and how can you mitigate some of this risk what are some kind of resources that can help you in your bravery what do you think about that um so you know this this question is such an important question to ask and i'd say that there there is a multi factorial kind of response that i can give because on one hand speaking up for me felt like i was called to do it i was uniquely positioned to do it in my class with regards to um trying to advocate for the improvement of diversity as it pertains to black medical students i knew that i was uniquely positioned to speak to the importance of that but also for me i say frequently during my public speaking opportunities that advocacy for me is a form of self-preservation hmm. and in my ted talk i say that it's a reclaiming of my identity in a space that tries to erase it and you know in medicine particularly where we don't often see black women existing speaking up about what it means to be black in that space what it means to be a woman in that space is is very validating i found that it was incredibly validating and it also helped me to process the racial traumas that i was experiencing the microaggressions that i was experiencing because when i was going through medical school there was no handbook there was no formal guidance on how it is that I was supposed to cope with dealing with sexism, racism, all the isms in in medicine. There was really, you know, I, I found it, I found that part to be incredibly challenging, incredibly isolating. And so being able to find my voice through advocacy actually gave me back some of that power that I felt like I had lost within that institution mm -hmm. and helped me embrace and once again stand in my truth as a black woman it enabled me to feel like i can show up in that space without having to erase aspects of my identity that are not traditionally seen in medicine so it, it kind of served that empowering goal for me but then also like i said I, I felt that it was incumbent upon me to be able to 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 do that work i knew that given my unique position that I can lend my story to help increase the potency of the initiative of the Black Student Application Program to reach out and help to inspire an entire collective of Black medical students who might be interested in pursuing medicine. And really, you know, for, for me, it was it was bigger than that. It was really trying to improve any kind of marginalized cohort that is underrepresented in medicine. And so what I've come to understand through doing my advocacy is that my story touches a certain element of inspiration that transcends race in a number of regards. Like I've had so many people from a number of different backgrounds, you know, socioeconomic, class, cultural differences, ethnicities, literally an, an entire variety of individuals who've reached out and thanked me for sharing my story, for saying it was so inspirational in areas, you know, even unrelated to medicine in law, in business, in teaching and education, in so many different areas from a variety of backgrounds who were thankful that, that I shared my story and that they felt inspired. And so I think that when it comes to, you know, how is it that I find 
the bravery, I'm reminded of the importance of what I do every single day. Mm-hmm. And I'm just so grateful for the opportunity to be able to inspire and mentor thousands of people. Um, and so, yeah, that's that's how I keep going. I would say. You know, it just strikes me you're so humble because um, not only is there a lack of acknowledgement or guidebook about the racism inherent in medicine there's there's a denial <laughs> like there's there's actually a denial and so uh i'm wondering i think that makes it even more difficult to find the courage sometimes because you're stuck within a framework that's swimming against you really like you actually have to swim against the current it's not that the current is with you or even standing still right yeah exactly it is actively against and when i share my narrative when i talk about individuals who actively dissented what i was doing who were actively opposing what i was doing you know i i would hear in my first year being told that you know don't even bother applying to this specialty because they I've already heard that an, an, an individual who works in that department is completely against what you're doing. And, mm-hmm. and so I'm reminded, or at least at that point, I was reminded constantly of how I was jeopardizing my career, how I you know, had just worked so hard to get into medical school and within six months I was going to be destroying mm-hmm. what I had spent a lifetime working towards. And so for me, it wasn't a light decision. It was it was a profoundly terrifying decision to decide to advocate for this initiative that was so controversial and still continues to be incredibly controversial. Yeah. And so definitely swimming upstream against the current. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm wondering, um, that sort of brings us to 2020 and present day and a lot of this groundswell that you started really has come to this in- incredible forefront, you know, with all of the, the protests and the pandemic and the, the evidence behind access to care for the BIPOC community, specifically within a pandemic. And I guess I'm just wondering how everything that has happened this year um, either exhilarated you or exhausted you or even just kind of added to the work that you're doing you know as a validation i would say that it definitely ebbs and flows like it it oscillates between it exhilarating me and it exhausting me (laughs) fair there is certainly there are certainly times in which black trauma has been sensationalized and exploited in order to further some kind of media agenda. And I've definitely faced the brunt of that, especially as this ties back back into my role of being valedictorian. When I was valedictorian last June, I was interviewed extensively by the media because this was also the era of the Black Lives Matter protests, the George Floyd protests. And I remember, you know, being led under the false pretense that I was going to be talking about something related to my valedictory address and then being completely blindsided with a question that was so um, out of left field. I remember a reporter asked me on live national television, what did it feel like to watch George Floyd get suffocated for two, like, oh two minutes or like, whatever. And that was in the middle of me talking about being valedictorian. And it was just, you know, just... I believe it was them wanting to see the visceral response of a black person being so traumatized on national TV. 
that really taught me that um, during a time like this, you have to be extremely careful with how vulnerable you are about experiencing your, your trauma and making sure that it's not held for public consumption. But then on the other side of that coin, recognizing that it was an incredible time to mobilize within organizations, within the community. There was an, an increased um, receptivity to changes as it pertains to anti-racism within institutions, within organizations and businesses on a societal level, you know, government level. And so the time was really of the essence and I felt absolutely impassioned and continue to feel impassioned. Um, but yeah, it was it was an oscillation between between the two feelings. And I think what your advocacy is a very difficult work, right? It yeah. can be there's many different emotions. There's exhilaration, passion, but it can also come with a lot of frustration, disappointments, being hurt, being blindsided, right? Mm -hmm. And at times it, it can reawaken trauma. There's a lot to navigate. So if you think about this, how do you take care of your emotional experience? How do you try to remain grounded? How do you process that part of, uh, of your being while doing all this work? So I, I find that this has been an iterative process of learning for me, constantly refining how it is that I take care of myself because one month I think I have it all the way down <laughs> and then I quickly learned that I do not have it all the way down pat. And I found, honestly, that the, the best way for me to keep myself sane throughout all of this is through setting boundaries. And I know it sounds very cliche at this point, like what, what does it mean to set boundaries? But truly drawing the line for myself, if that means taking all the social media off my phone, which I, I have done, I continue to do it all the time. I, I'll delete apps off of my phone for weeks at a time. I'll focus on the things that I love, like reading novels or catching up on emails. Don't love catching up on emails, but things that I you know, need to do that are being neglected. Um, but also at times for me, self-care looks a bit more radical. And I wanted to share an, an, a very personal anecdote of what I've kind of been going through in the last month that I think demonstrates the various ways in which one can show up for themselves. And so ever since I started my advocacy, I've, I've been a target of online hate uh, for the last four going on five years. And mm. I've never really let it get to me to any regard. It's always been something that kind of just comes with being an advocate. However, in the past month, it escalated to a point of actual criminal harassment mm. and being the victim of a of a hate crime. And so it came to the point where I had to decide for myself that, you know, this is really starting to impact me. And instead of deleting things off of my phone and trying to, you know, preserve my mental wellness there, actually taking it a step ahead and filing a, a police report, which for me was the most ultimate form of boundary setting in a sense, because there there has to come a point in which people are held accountable for their actions you can't just anonymously harass someone for two months and expect to not have any reprimand just because it's the internet. And so that for me was actually incredibly validating and it was a form of self-care that it allowed me to know that I'm not completely powerless when it comes to these situations. And so that for me has actually been the best form of self-care that I could have done in the last month was 
ensuring my own safety, my mental wellness, but also my physical wellness mm-hmm. and, and my psychological wellness. And so I would encourage anyone who is doing this kind of advocacy, because there are so many risks to this kind of advocacy, to know where your borders are, to know what your limitations are. I'm so sorry that that happened to you. And I think what you're saying is very, very important because uh, sometimes to take care of our well-being when doing advocacy work, we'd really have to think about how to protect our energy and uh, how to ensure our safety. And sometimes we have to engage in more drastic measures for that. So maybe we can move you into something that you haven't actually mentioned, but that in my mind is probably, well, it seems to be uh, uh, something that is wellness related for you. And, and that is really your art, your poetry. Yeah. And, um, you know, Amanda Gorman sort of took the world by <laughs> by, by the hearts yes. just uh, like under a month ago. And I, I know that you've recently taken a position with the board of directors at Indigo. Yes. And, you know, there's been so much around um, Black feminist work, Adichie, Lord, uh, all of these great feminist writers and poets who talk a lot about self-care and self-love and political resistance and decolonization. You know, we were talking a little bit before about your poetry, and I'm wondering if you could both comment on how your poetry might be something that takes you into a, a space of comfort. And I was also wondering if you'd like to recite something for us, if you feel up to it, that would be amazing as well. Sure. Um, Yeah. So poetry for me is absolutely the greatest form of resilience for me and resistance for me. Um, I've been using poetry ever since I was, you know, under 10 years old, using poetry to communicate my understanding, my perspectives. um, Sorry, did you just, did you just say under 10 years old? Yeah, yeah. I've been writing poetry since I was like seven or eight years old, probably even younger than that. I've just always had a love and affinity for poetry. It's kind of just been the natural way in which I view the world and almost like the way in which my brain processes information and the way that the narrative kind of flows through my mind is very poetic in the sense that it's just kind of how I I organically put things together. And so I just have been writing poetry for my whole life. And when it came to engaging in socio-political issues and using my platform for resistance, poetry for me has just always been the most natural way to communicate my stance on things. And so when I was in medical school, I wrote a poem entitled Woman Black that I used to describe my experience of being the only Black student in my class, which for me is is always an easier way to talk about the topic just because the experience in and of itself at times can be very um, traumatizing to have to discuss in detail all of the various racist like, things that I've experienced. And it's just easier for me and, and a lot more cathartic to put it into poetry and perform it. So I would love to share this poem. It's entitled Woman Black and I wrote it almost four years ago. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> woman and Black. Doctor and woman, doctor and Black, doctor, Black woman, doctor, doctor, we need a doctor. Is there anyone on this plane that can help? How can you be both doctor and Black woman? They told us that back, they asked for credentials. Was at the top of the differential position? Unlikely. 
They did not look like me. They did not speak like me. And yet, it only took me three years on this earth to realize that doctor is what I was destined to be. It took you 10 seconds to decimate 10 plus years of my training. I do not have my credentials, but this man's vitals are waning. They told her step back. How can you be both doctor and black? I asked myself the same. When they call me by name, I will say, not Stacy, but Chica. Chica Stacy, if you insist, but you'd be remiss if you thought I would divorce myself from this African bloodline. When I step into this white coat, I am more black than ever. I will remember the days when they laughed at my features, broad nose, dark skin, and kinks caused my confidence to shrink when they asked me, did they make it easier for you to get in here? Just suppose against these white walls, a message was clear. Woman, black, Pacific School of Medicine, home to the discovery of insulin. My existence in this lineage felt like insolence, managing the dissonance of my identity, enigma at the epicenter of diversity, code switching with urgency, shedding the layers of culture off my tongue, carefully dissecting the vernacular. My speech becomes a disembodied phantom of my being that I fail to resuscitate. Code blue and the deep hues of my skin remind me that this is more like code black, meaning that there's an imminent threat. Suspicious object found on hospital grounds, they asked me if I felt pangs of regret being the only black body in a sea of 259 students. They advised me, remain diligent, prudent, for the margin of error is insignificant when you dare be woman and black, when you dare be opinionated. They'll misconstrue your passion for attitude or conviction for aggression when speaking on oppression. So be black, but not radical. Shauna says we have to work twice as hard to get half as much. So work four times that. Think logic, think practical, think. Black, woman, physician in training, my patience is draining when I instead deviate towards hypotheticals. What am I supposed to do when I encounter bigotry in this field and their condition is critical? How do I learn how to deal with internalizing sexism and racism during rounds? When do we learn how to heal? Is there even an option? They told me, proceed with caution. For there is no formal training when navigating the coarse waters of medicine as woman and black. Doctor and woman, doctor and black, doctor, black woman, doctor, doctor, we need a doctor. Is there anyone on this plane that can help? How can you be both doctor and black woman? I quickly say back, I know of nothing else than to become physician in the face of doubt, to be fearlessly melanin in a world that begs otherwise, and to be feminine when my narrative is challenged and my abilities are called into question. I will stand at the intersection of my identities and I will say, I am woman. I am black, I am doctor, and I am here. Wow. Wow, yeah. <laughs> wow. So powerful. Profound. Thank you. Thank you so much. Wow. Yeah, and I, you know, listening to it live, that was really, really amazing. And I'm not sure I can really speak. Camila, you're going to have We're to We're so privileged over. right now. <laughs> we are so privileged right now. Oh, yes. thank you. Yeah. Um, I was thinking about it as you were reciting your poem and how often your identity as a black woman physician has been invalidated within the system and how in this poem you're reclaiming your narrative. You're choosing your narrative, owning it. What do you think about the importance of choosing our own narrative in the face of a system of oppression, marginalization, which is not yet the system that we want it to be. Right. So I definitely think that, you know, when you dare to stand in your truth, 
within these institutions, within these systems that either try to take that away from you or try to strip you of your, of, of your identity or, or try to silence your identity. I think that it, it really helps to empower yourself, but also helps to empower others. It allows them to know that if someone like yourself can exist and thrive in that space, then, then they can as well. And that for me has been the most important element, I think, of my story is that reclaiming my narrative enables others to stand in their own narrative fearlessly within these institutions. But then it, it also is, is a call to action for these institutions to make these spaces safer and more accessible for those on the margins, right? It can't just be up to the individual who is historically marginalized to just come into a space that is designed, sorry, that is not designed to support them and expect them to thrive. It really is this, you know, dual responsibility, I would say. And so I think that's really part of the importance of reclaiming your narrative. And then that also enables you to ensure that other people don't change your narrative. Mm -hmm. You know, being a Black woman in medicine and often being mistaken for another healthcare professional or another individual who works in the hospital, whether it's custodians or whether it's someone else. And it's like all of these roles are, are so important to even keep the institution running. But I was trained to occupy the role as physician. And so when you enter a space and people are treating you differently other than the role that you were trained to do, it can be incredibly invalidating from that perspective. And so when I claim and boldly proclaim that I'm a Black woman, yes, but I'm also a doctor, and that enables others to readjust their perspectives and change the ways in which they might be reinforcing you know, systemic forms of oppression through their thoughts, through their actions, through what they support, through what they don't support, through their mm -hmm. silence. And so it really, it calls upon a paradigm shift not only within yourself, but within the entire culture of an institution. That's such a great segue into my next comment. And, you know, we talk a lot about reimagining things as part of activism, in a sense. So I'm wondering if you can reimagine for us a medical school institution as a place of social justice. What would that look like for you? I would just say it would be a space in which... If I could go back to medical school and think about all the other experiences, it would be a space in which I could freely discuss the instances in which I've dealt with discrimination without so much pushback and silencing. And I'm not just talking about silencing, you know, from superiors, but even amongst my peers and feeling invalidated and having that come from so many different angles can be such a painful experience, mm -hmm. whether it's from residents, from staff, from peers, you know, from preceptors. And I would just wish that there could be a space in which people's narratives, people's experience, their lived experience can just be honored, respected, and validated in, mm -hmm. intrinsically. I think that lays the foundation for respecting medical students for creating active social justice is a space where they can live their authentic lives without fear of reprimand for speaking up about things that they've experienced because that in and of itself is so incredibly othering so damaging mm -hmm. to an individual and leads to further isolation so that's what i would hope 
if I could reimagine medical school, that's mm-hmm. what it would be. Oh, it sounds ideal. You know, I'm 30 years out of medical school, but certainly much of this uh, has not changed. It's incredible to hear your story because it's like we're in a time warp, a groundhog day of sorts, <laughs> where yeah. this just keeps happening. Yeah. I'm, I, your poem alluded to the fact that you wanted to be a doctor since you were three. Is that, can you just take us back to that, uh, <laughs> that, uh, that story? I will say I certainly did not appreciate how much work was going to go <laughs> yeah. into being a doctor when I was years old. Yeah. Um, but I knew that my my mom's brother, so my uncle, he's a physician, not in Canada, but in the States. And we would go and visit them. And I knew that he took care of babies. He's a neonatologist. And um, I had a fascination with babies as a child and still do. And I knew that he spent all of his time taking care of sick babies. And I was like, well, that's what I want to do. And so from three years old, I said, I'm just going to be a doctor. That's it. Um, And I would just say I was extremely fortunate that my earliest conception of what I wanted to do with my life aligned with my skill set and with my talents and with my passions that ended up, you know, coming to fruition decades later. Uh, But certainly... At that time, I did not appreciate how much work is going to be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it's, it's so wonderful how you knew about your passions, you know, wanting to be a doctor and your love for poetry very early on in your life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, yeah. And, and related a little bit to what you were talking about before in, in activism, um, Valerie Carr, who is a lawyer, civil rights activist and filmmaker, she talks about the importance of imagery in activism. Mm-hmm. Mm. And she talks about, you know, what is your sword? What is your shield? What is your beloved community? So if you were to think a little bit about this imagery, what is your sword? What is your shield? And who is your beloved community? And maybe even in medical school where there are individuals who offer mentorship or comfort, encouragement, and also that shared identity. I'd say my sword is my voice. Um, That is something that for me has given me this platform, has enabled me to share my poetry. I I think that it also speaks beautifully to the metaphor of being silenced, not only, you know, metaphorically, but also literally people not wanting me to express my voice, to share my story. And so my, my sword would definitely be my voice. My shield, I would say is, is my loved ones. And um, and the community of mentors that I have at U of T, three of whom come to mind when I think of the badass black female doctors and female doctors in general. The three of whom that I think of, um, one is Dr. Oni Norum. She's also a McGill alumna. Mm-hmm. Um, and then one is Dr. Lisa Robinson. And then lastly, Dr. Pierre Bryden. And um, she is a psychiatrist at U of T and helped to plant the seeds of my love for psychiatry, but has also been an incredible protective force for me in the last going on five years. All of these three women, ever since I started medical school, literally within the first month, became the protective guardian figure for me and have shielded me and protected me and guided me through every form of adversity that I face in medical school. And so they are the giants upon whose shoulders I'm standing. And I'm so grateful for that. Gorgeous. Yeah. 
So I think we are approaching the end of our questions and our dialogue. It's been such a great conversation. Is there anything that you would like to say, final words to some of our learners? Uh, really, this is a podcast for our BIPOC learners, for the community that they've created and, and trying mm -hmm. to create both a safe space as well as some empowerment for them. Yeah, if there's anything that I think is the one piece I try to leave everyone with is to just own your narrative. Mm. I think there's so much difficulty, especially when you're racialized or especially when you're marginalized for, you know, regardless of whatever it is that is making you marginalized, there's so much difficulty in owning your narrative because other people try to define that for you. They try to tell you who you are and what you stand for and especially what you're capable of. And I think that when you reclaim that, when you say, and when you live through your actions, what your narrative is and you stand in your truth, that is one of the most powerful things that you can do for yourself. And just never letting anyone else define your narrative. I know that's what Michelle Obama said. I talked about it in my valedictorian address. But oh, don't even get us talking about Michelle Obama. We're going we're gonna to be here for hours. Right. Yeah. 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 And, you know, like if anybody doubts it, I mean, the fact is, is TED Talk came to you right? So your authenticity, your narrative is so strong that you didn't fill any application out. They came to you. And so that, that power, we hope, uh, inspires uh, some of the people that are going to be listening to this. I know that you're going to be back with us uh, in Block G for our undergraduate medical students. Yeah. And I think that's going to be really exciting too. Yeah. I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. Uh, it's obvious to us that you put you in your talks and that's rare and, and stunning. I have to say that. Thank you. Thank you so much. It, it was so inspiring and so profound and I'm really grateful that you wanted to share your experience with us. It's been an absolute pleasure and honor chatting with both of you and uh, I'm so excited for future opportunities to collaborate and for the lecture upcoming. I'm just so grateful for this opportunity. Thank All you right. so much. Take care.